time for the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King has never let that stop him from attaining his goal on becoming a blind broadcaster. And now, here's the blind broadcaster himself, Luther King. Hello again, everybody. Happy New Year. And welcome to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. My guest today is the radio voice of the Vancouver Canucks, Brandon Batchelor. He is the youngest play-by-play voice in the National Hockey League. If you have suggestions or guests you'd like to hear on the podcast, you can email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Send me a direct message on Twitter at king underscore tsb or on Instagram at lkingcardinalsfan85. Without further ado, the New Year's Day edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. My guest today on the Blind Broadcaster Pod is one of the youngest voices of the NHL. And the current broadcaster you can catch on Sportsnet 650. And you can follow him on Twitter at Batch Hockey. He also does color. He also does play-by-play for the Stanley Cup playoffs as well. And he is color analyst, his former Vancouver Canucks goaltender, Corey Hirsch. And being joined by the voice of the Canucks. And for the time being, the NHL playoffs on the Sportsnet Hockey Network on the radio side. Banded Bachelor. And <clears throat> when is enough broadcasting for you is going to be something that you would have as a career? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate Thanks. you Thanks having me on the show. Thanks um, for the time. Yeah, no problem. Uh, when did I really know that it was something I was going to pursue as a career? I kind of think I sort of always knew, but I, I didn't really realize it. Like when I was a kid, I would do the play-by-play of my street hockey games. I would do the play-by-play playing the NHL video game. I would mute the TV and do the play-by-play of watching a game. I had a table hockey set, and I would you know, record cassette tapes of myself doing the play-by-play of those games from the time I was like four or five years old. But at that point, you know, you're a kid. You're just playing make-believe, pretending sure. that I'm a – NHL broadcaster and mm-hmm. you know that's sort of all it was it was something I enjoyed uh, but I didn't really seriously think about it as a career probably until I was coming through high school and you know you're getting to be a, uh, a junior and a senior in high school and they're starting to say to you hey you got to think about what you want to do career-wise where you want to mm-hmm. post-secondary education university or college or whatever and what you want to do and I was sort of batting around a few ideas and um, you know, sort of suddenly thought, hey, you know, I've I've enjoyed talking about sports and talking about hockey my whole life. If there's a way I could get paid to do that and have that be my career, then then that would be pretty awesome. And so that's really where, as I said, it was something that I had been preparing for ever since I was four or five years old. Uh, and then, you know, really probably later on in high school was where uh, I thought suddenly, wow, this is something I could actually do. It doesn't have to just be make-believe. Were there other sports that you did, or was hockey the number one that you wanted to do, or were there other sports at the high school level that you did before going to college and maybe making hockey full-time, or were you open to doing any sport from the high school level to the college level? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm born and raised in the Vancouver area in, uh, in Western Canada and British Columbia. Uh, so I, you know, hockey has always been my number one sport. Uh, it's something that I love when I was a small child, I played it growing up. Um, and, and really that was my main career goal from the outset was I want to cover hockey. I want to do hockey play by play in the NHL. Now, you know, along the way I have done play by play of some other sports, um, not necessarily a ton of other sports, though. I've done some soccer play-by-play uh, at the USL level with the uh, Vancouver Whitecaps FC2, which is the the former uh, farm team, I guess you could call them, of the Vancouver Whitecaps of Major League Soccer. Uh, I also had the opportunity to call a few MLS games uh, for the Vancouver Whitecaps, um, you know, a few years back. But really, in terms of sports that I've broadcasted, it's hockey and then a little bit of soccer. In terms of what I played growing up, though, I tried everything. I played basketball, played a a very little bit of rugby, um, you know, took swimming lessons, did play baseball, did all sorts of things. So, you know, I've I've certainly had a love for all sports uh, or for most sports and uh, have either participated or followed or been a fan uh, of a variety of different sports and teams, but in terms of actually broadcasting games, it's really been hockey and then a little bit of soccer, and that's it. Answer me this, because I've listened to our, you know, MLS soccer team, Nashville SC here. Mm-hmm. I've tried, you know, to listen to soccer and catch on. How long does it take for? I'm not going to say me being a new fan of sports, but when you broadcast a soccer game compared to actually listening to it, how did you learn soccer broadcast and what are the differences or maybe the equal parts to calling a hockey game with skates and sticks and a balkanized rubberized puck compared to a bunch of people playing on grass, turf, and a soccer ball. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I, I've been a fan of soccer since I was a child. You know, my, my mother's British. And because of that, I've traveled to England numerous times. And, and, you know, I really picked up a love for the game of soccer because there's lots of people over there that really love it. It really is the number one sport in, mm-hmm. in England and in, in Europe. Um, so, you know, I, I've grown up following soccer. I, I grew up watching the World Cup every time it was on every four years. Um, you know, once I got into my teenage years, I, I became a, a very steadfast follower of the English Premier League as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that still comes on the weekends. So. Yeah, exactly. So, so that <laughs> it's, it's something that I had an idea for what calling a soccer game would be like before I ever did it. But, um, you know, really my first opportunity to do soccer play-by-play was well after I was into my hockey broadcasting career. And um, so the the games that I would call for Vancouver Whitecaps FC2 were online video streams. So mm-hmm. you're essentially, like, it's not on proper television, but you're doing right. a TV broadcast. So, you know, even in hockey, broadcasters will tell you, doing TV versus radio is very different. You have to be much more descriptive on radio. You have to try and paint a picture um, because, you know, everybody listening to you isn't watching the game, so they can't pick up on details, uh, and you have to provide a much more colorful level of play-by-play. Um, so I've done soccer, both the televised kind and the radio kind and it's very different as well where i would say 
calling a soccer game on the radio isn't that much different than calling a hockey game on the radio, although it's maybe not quite as as fast-paced or there may not be chances and opportunities and, and high-drama moments happening every second of the game. Uh, again, you're trying to paint that picture so that someone that's sitting at home that is just listening uh, can't see what's happening, uh, has an understanding or has as good of an understanding as you can provide for them sure. what's happening. So, you know, for calling a soccer game on TV, you might say, you know, Johnson passes to Stevenson. Then it goes back to Johnson and you're not providing any description, but because they can uh, see it on, on, they can see it with their eyeballs. Yeah, exactly. But then if you're calling it on the radio, you might say Johnson has it on the right touch line, crosses it through the middle. Stevenson runs onto it there. He's into the attacking half now, plays it over to the left side and Smith is there to get it. Smith wide on the left. And again, so like, and that's kind of the same thing that I bring to my hockey broadcasts where I'm always trying to provide the, point, the, the points location. on the rink, like the wings and the circles. Yes. And that's one piece of advice I received very early in my career that has stuck with me from Jim Robson, who's a hockey hall of fame broadcaster, the former voice of the Vancouver Canucks. The Jim for many, many years. Scandal. Exactly. He used to work uh, for hockey night in Canada. He's retired now, but he said the number one thing on radio is the location of the puck on the ice because people can't see. So, you know, it's fine for me to say, Quinn Hughes passes to Elias Pedersen and he scores if I'm doing TV because, you know, you don't need much TV. Yeah, exactly. But if I'm doing it on the radio, I've got to say Elias Pedersen skates in on the left wing, passes over to the right side. Hughes shoots from the circle and scores. He fired it over the glove of the goaltender. And now, you know, there's a picture in your mind of what may have happened because I've provided all those extra details. So calling soccer for radio is very similar in that way where, even though it's not as, as fast a game as hockey or as back and forth or as, you know, I, I don't want to say it's not as exciting because a soccer goal can be very exciting because it's generally a low-scoring game. So if your mm -hmm. team scores a goal, it could mean you're winning the game. You know, in my mind, a goal in soccer is one of the most exciting plays in all of sports because it could literally mean the difference between winning and losing. Um, but the pace of play is very different, yet – that responsibility as a radio broadcaster to still paint that picture remains the same. So, um, so in that respect, it actually wasn't as, as different as I thought it would be calling the two different sports. Answer me this though, because are all the goals in soccer, some, the way that the announcers bring the energy, like they do the British broadcast crew, like the <laughs> Ian darts of the world and, I don't know who the other guys are. I don't because I don't really watch much soccer on TV because I really don't, you know, watch sports on TV. If I can find a radio broadcast, I'd rather listen to that anyway. Mm -hmm. But are all the goals that they call exciting, like the spectacular header or when they're like in a smozzle of folks trying to, you know, find a way to force it through the goalie and in? How many of those goals are actually spectacular? And how many of those goals are just your normal, ordinary, run-of-the-mill type goal that you see? Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. Um, I think, in general, soccer is a harder sport to score in. So Especially with the goaltending. Yeah, so it, with the goaltending and with the size of the field and, 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 you know, the number of players that you have to get through in order to score. So right. generally speaking – 
unless the other team is making a huge mistake, it does require a high level of skill to score a goal in soccer. Now there, there are differing levels of excitement of goals in any sport, right? Right. Like if you look at a hockey game, if a a player gets a breakaway and makes a beautiful deke and scores, like that's a very nice goal. Exactly. Like a, like a Braden point for Tampa. I think, didn't he score the winner last night, I think, or something like no, that? No, it was Anthony Sorelli that scored last oh, night. Sorelli. That's okay. a good example. That's a good example because that goal was, you know, I would say not as as spectacular spectacular as a Braden point end-to-end rush because, you know, Sorelli shoots, it goes off the post, it rolls along the goal line, and it was going to go wide, but then it hits the goaltender's skate and crosses – into the net. So but, basically it was almost like the double doink we saw in the foot in the playoffs of football where, where Cody Parkey just double doinked it off the upright and he thought it was going to go through and it ticked out. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but at the same time, that goal last night is an overtime winner to end a series and send sure. a team to the Stanley cup final. So, you know, whether a goal is exciting, there's lots of bits of context that can determine, you know, if, if, Braden Point scores an end-to-end goal, and it's really nice, but it's the 10th goal of the game to put his team up. Like 10-1. to 1. It's less exciting than if it's in triple overtime in the Stanley Cup final. So, sure. you know, bringing it back to soccer, there are some goals that are very high skill-level plays that are exciting because of that. There are goals that are exciting because they're key moments in games where maybe a team has scored to go ahead very late and it's very likely that they've just won the game. Sure. Um, but, but generally speaking, I think that it, it, not that it doesn't take a high level of skill to score in other sports, but generally speaking, if you see someone scoring a soccer goal, it's either because they've made a fantastic play or because the other team has made a fantastically awful play to allow them to score. When did you first meet John Robson? And also, you also work with another legend on TV who did radio and TV forever and ever, and John Shorthouse, who's still the TV voice of the Canucks, who still is. Yes. Yeah, they've both been incredible influences on my career. So I met Jim Robson probably, uh, let me think, probably around a decade ago, maybe a little bit. No, it would be it would be more like seven or eight years ago when I was doing play-by-play for the Vancouver Giants who are in the Western Hockey League. So they're a junior team that's also based in Vancouver. Isn't that the same, uh, isn't that the same league that has the Windsor Spitfire? And, um... So the Windsor Spitfires are the Ontario Hockey League. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Western Hockey League does have some American teams. So the Portland Winterhawks, the okay. Seattle Thunderbirds, the Everett Silvertips uh, are all teams. The Tri-City Americans, where Carey Price played, uh, are all in that league. Um, but I was doing the play-by-play there and that was a great opportunity for me because yes, it was still doing junior hockey, but because it was the Vancouver team, it was in a major market on major market radio. So I still had, you know, people hearing me do play-by-play, even if it wasn't the Canucks. And I heard through the grapevine that, that Jim Robson had liked my broadcasts. And then, you know, he came to a game one night and I had a chance to meet him and chat with him. And, um, so, so that's when, when I first met him and he's been a tremendous resource for me in terms of uh, providing me lots of insight and help, you know, to try and better my career. And when I first got the Canucks job, you know, just advice about how to handle uh, being around the hockey team all the time and the travel schedule and everything like that. So Jim has been amazing. He's been, you know, one of the biggest impacts on my career in terms of uh, a colleague or someone in the industry. Uh, and then John Shorthouse has been just the same. And he's really the guy that I listened to most of the time growing up because 
uh, by the time I was, you know, really becoming a hockey fan, uh, Jim Robson was just about ready to retire. So I remember listening to him and I still think he's one of the best, if not the best hockey play-by-play broadcasters of all time. But growing up, I, I listened to a lot of John Shorthouse. And uh, now we know each other very well because, of course, he still does the games on TV. I do them on the radio. So we travel with the hockey team in normal times when we are able to travel. Uh, and, you know, we go out to dinner together all the time and spend a lot of downtime together on the road. And, uh, again, uh, a tremendous broadcaster, a true professional who has also really helped me in my career as well. So that that's another thing. And, and you know, people often ask, um, you know, what it is about Vancouver and play-by-play broadcasters because the Canucks have had a really great history. Yeah, Jim Rob- the, first, the first guy I remember was Jim Robson because yeah. – I, you know, I listened to when they had that 19, that Stanley Cup run when they had mm-hmm. Jim Robinson's play-by-play calls and they had some Todd Bertuzzi and a few other guys when they got through, you know, the playoffs and then got to the finals before they eventually lost. And I'm like, wow, that's Jim Robson? Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. So, I mean, Jim Robson was the first voice of the Canucks. Jim Hewson. Uh, has also been the voice of the Canucks. He's now the lead voice for Hockey Night in Canada and will be broadcasting the Stanley Cup final on the television side here. And he did over baseball. the next few weeks. He, he did he, baseball he, as well. Yeah, he did the he Blue did some, Jays. He was, on, he was on, what was it? What was it? MLB 2000. He, he was on a few of the MLB games. As well video. as the NHL video games as well. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he's now. Uh, Hockey Night in Canada, but he was the voice of the Canucks. And then there's John Shorthouse, who's, you know, excellent at what he does and is beloved in Vancouver as well. And so people say, you know, what is it about Vancouver that produces great broadcasters? And I always say, well, it it starts with Jim Robson, because when Jim Robson was doing games, you know, young Jim Hewson and young John Shorthouse, who were aspiring to be NHL broadcasters one day, were listening to and emulating Jim Robson. And then you pass that... And then you pass that to the next generation, young Brendan Batchelor growing up, is listening to Jim Hewson and John Shorthouse, who were influenced by Jim Robson. And, and so I think that is really what has made Vancouver such a great market for play-by-play broadcasters. And you look at, there are a number of guys who started their careers in Vancouver that have gone on to bigger things elsewhere. Jim Hewson, I bring up. Dave Randorf has been a play-by-play voice for Hockey Night in Canada. He's Vancouver-based. Rick Ball is the TV play-by-play voice of the Calgary Flames. He used to call Canuck games on the radio. Yeah, I wondered what happened to him. Yeah, so, I, I mean, there that to me is what it all comes down to, is when you have such an excellent broadcaster like Jim Robson, so tied to one market, it's going to produce better broadcasters. Because John Shorthouse says this all the time. Mm-hmm. He said he loved Jim Robson because when he was growing up, the Canucks were a bad team. And the best part about the Canucks was that even if they were one of the worst teams, they had the best broadcaster. And, you know, uh, uh, when I grew up, the Canucks had some ups and downs. They went to the Stanley cup final in 1994 when I was five years old Uh, in the late nineties, they weren't a very good team. Then they were, you know, a very good team into the early two thousands again. And uh, of course went to the Stanley cup final in 2011 with Daniel and Henrik Sedin leading the way. But the one thing that has remained steadfast is the broadcast, whether the team is good or not is the quality of the broadcast. Absolutely. So, while you were working with the Vancouver Giants, when did you get wind that 
maybe the Canucks job will pop open. And I'm guessing that was before the station rights changed hands from TSN 1050 to Sportsnet 650, or was that way beforehand? Because I don't know when you came on board. Because I don't, because I don't, you know, because the last the last Vancouver game I listened to before I you know picked you up was a short house broadcaster. Maybe or maybe it was a Rick Ball broadcast, and there was another guy before you. I think that. Mm-hmm. He was okay. I think it was like Corey, somebody I forgot, but he was okay. Yeah, so it, it so wasn't. What, I don't know what the right word was. It, it just felt like <laughs> it didn't fit. So yeah, I uh, I actually interviewed for the Vancouver Canuck radio job three years before I ended up getting it. So I was calling games for the Vancouver Giants at that time, mm-hmm. and. Um, John Shorthouse would do the TV games and some of the radio games. And then the games that uh, John Shorthouse didn't call on the radio, Rick Ball would call on the radio. Mm-hmm. But it was at that time that Rick Ball was hired to go to Calgary and do the TV. So there was an opening there. And at that time, I did the play-by-play for the Vancouver Giants, but I also worked part-time at TSN 1040, which uh, at yeah, the that's time was, Thank you. was the rights holder. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So at that time, they were the rights holder. Right. So, you know, I, I, I worked there and I called games for the Vancouver Giants, which was also aired on their station. So um, people had, you know, heard my body of work, understood uh, or understood, I should say, what, what I was capable of. Uh, and so I got an opportunity to interview for it at that time. But I, I honestly think that I wasn't ready for it because right. I had called two years of play-by-play at any level. I had done one year in the BC Hockey League with the Surrey Eagles and then okay. one year with the Vancouver Giants in the Western Hockey League, and I was 25 years old. So um, I was very nervous going into that interview. In the end, I didn't get the job, um, but I you know, was able to meet some people within the Canuck organization and so that they were aware of me and that I was on their radar. And um, at that time, John Abbott, was given the job to call the games on TSN 1040. Well, fast forward three years later, I've called three more seasons with the Vancouver Giants. So I've now got five years of hockey play by play under my belt. Mm -hmm. And the news breaks that the radio rights are going to be switching to Sportsnet 650, which is a new station that Sportsnet was launching in Vancouver. And at that time I thought, well, you know what, you know, John's been calling the games for three years. They're probably going to bring him over and he'll keep calling the games, but I'm going to reach out to a contact I have with the Canucks just to find out if there are going to be any opportunities with this new station, whether it be to do play by play, whether it be to, you know, host a daytime sports talk show, be a board or whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, th- this is a new station that they would have to build from the ground up, right? From so scratch. they're going to have mm-hmm. to they're going to have to hire the board ops. They're going to have to hire the producers. They're going to have to hire the hosts. They're going to have to hire the people that do the sports updates. They're mm-hmm. going to have to hire a play by play team to do Canuck games. They still so a bit of everything. Exactly. So I, I reached out uh, to a contact I had with the Canucks, and they put me in touch um, with someone that was going to be involved in the hiring process through Rogers. And I sent them my application and heard back from them. They said, you know, we're not doing any hiring yet, but stay tuned and we'll be in touch. Uh, And then uh, probably a month or two later, they um, made the decision to hire Craig McEwen as the program director for the station. And I had a great relationship with Craig. He had previously worked for Sportsnet TV in Vancouver. 
And he and I had both covered the local Canadian football league team, the BC Lions, at the same time for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I'd gotten to know Craig. In fact, I had done an internship with Craig when I was back in broadcast school. So I had known him for a number of years. He knew me. Um, you know, we had kept in touch because he actually was laid off by Sportsnet TV and didn't work in the industry for a few years. Oh, wow. Um, but I had I had run into him at, a, at just a community hockey rink a few months previous to that, and we had had a good conversation. And so when when I found out that he had been hired, I reached out to him directly and said, hey, I'd love to be involved. Not sure what you guys are going to do with the Canucks. Um, but, you know, regardless of what you want to do, I'd love to be involved with the new station. And he said, okay, we'll, we'll be sure to get you in for an interview. And, uh, and the process went from there where I interviewed a couple of times. Uh, and, you know, later that summer, they, they let me know that they were going to go with me and made the choice not to bring the previous broadcast team of John Abbott and Dave Tomlinson over from TSN radio. And, you know, I, I can't really provide insight as to why they, made that decision and you know certainly it's been very good for me but it's it you know this industry is a tough one where I know that John who is one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet uh you know lost an opportunity and now isn't calling games in the NHL because of the opportunity I was given and he was tremendously classy through the whole thing he even called me to congratulate me on getting the position which you know if the shoe had been on the other foot I don't know if I would have had the courage to make that call when someone has essentially taken my job from me so and basically you know, taking food, sort of, and basically taking food off your table exactly and and you know that's that's the industry and that's not that was never my intent was to put someone else out of a job it's just you know an opportunity for my dream job came along and it was offered to me I wasn't going to say no but you know it's it's a it's a tough industry that way almost every opportunity I've had in this industry has been as a result of the misfortune of someone else, whether it's someone else gets laid off and suddenly there's an opportunity for you to be promoted or get more work or whatever it might be. Um, and you know, that's, so, the, that's the sucky part about this industry though. I mean, I love this industry for what it can give you, but the tough part is at, it's at somebody else's expense, which goes usually. for any industry though, but yes. especially yeah. in this one, because you listen to people, and so I can listen and have an idea on if I'm going to like this person's call or if I'm going to be at least, you know, entertained a little bit while listening to the broadcast or are they just in this business or are they in this in or are they in this industry just for a paycheck? I'll get it right in a minute. <laughs> but you yeah, see well, what I'm you see where I'm going with this because it's like you want people to keep their jobs, but as the old adage goes, it's a dog eat dog world. Absolutely. And, you know, as much as in this instance, I was on the right side of that opportunity. I have full understanding that there, you know, could come a time down the road where I'm on the other end of that, where it's someone else taking my opportunity. And that's kind of, the way this industry works, but that's the hard part about it because as you allude to, like everybody has opinions, right? I, I hear of people on Twitter. There are people who think I do a really good job. There are people who think I suck, but the fact of the matter is regardless of what you think about how someone does their job, we're all still people. We're all still trying to earn a living. We're all still trying to support our families. And so that was the hardest part for me. It was, you know, dream job, great opportunity. You know, I'm, I'm, 
was very happy and am still very happy that I get a chance to call Vancouver Canuck games. If you had told five-year-old Brendan Batchelor that he would be doing that, he would have been blown away. He would have thought it was the coolest thing of all time. Um, but at the same time, you know, as much as, as it's gone very well for me, it, it was at the expense of someone else. And that's something I try to, to never forget just that, you know, to cherish every moment I have, because the way this industry works, you never know where things are going to go. Um, you know, tomorrow next year 10 years from now and especially in the middle of a you know an international pandemic like we're seeing right now there's so Tell much uncertainty for everyone in this world that um that you know you just try to enjoy it while you've got it and uh, you know just prepare yourself for whatever might come tomorrow how big is it that you had the opportunity to work with a former player who was a goalie with the Canucks working with Corey Hirsch as your analyst because how big is it working with him to get his perspective from a goaltender's point of view that probably a lot of broadcasters don't get the opportunity to get yeah i've i've learned a lot working with Corey, to be honest because he provides an insight that most of us don't have because he's been there he's played the game you know he's a he's a former cannot goaltender he's played in big playoff games for the Canucks. Um, you know, he'd been traded in the NHL. He's played in the minors. He's played in Europe. So he's seen it all. And he has, a, you know, he's been a goaltending coach as well. So he has unique insight. So I've learned a lot from him just from the way he analyzes the game or opinions he has about things where I would be like, oh, you know what? I, I never would have thought about it that way, but that absolutely makes complete sense. And you know, it's, it's so crucial to have that on our broadcast because that's something that I cannot bring, right? Like I, I work my You're hardest. You're not doing rep. the analyst job. Yeah, well, and, and even if I was trying to analyze, you know, I'm not, I don't have the perspective of a former player. Sure. So I can try to analyze the play, you know, to the best of my ability, and I can study, you know, hockey strategy and all things like that. But Corey provides some great insight you know, about, you know, this is what this guy is probably feeling or thinking right now. And that is something that I can't provide because I haven't been there and he has. So, um, you know, I think we've had a great partnership here. We've been calling games for three seasons now. And, um, you know, I, I think we've only grown in our chemistry as every year has gone on, which is certainly crucial to the success of a, a good broadcast. And it helps as well that he's a great guy so that, uh, you know, when we're not on the air and, and not, you know, broadcasting the game, we get along really well well too and and so it's it's been it's been really good for me to have have a guy like Corey with me on the broadcast for sure how long did you feel like it took you to you know build that type of chemistry with your broadcast partner and what was the biggest thing you had to learn to make him feel comfortable but also him feel comfortable with you as now a broadcast pair and now that you're don't move Canucks, but you guys are also broadcasting like the conference finals, Stanley Cup finals, you know, with what's ahead on the TSN Sportsnet Radio Network. Excuse me. I'll get it right in a second. But how big is it when you first started with him now working extra games where you can keep building the chemistry as you guys get ready for a fourth season, especially in a bubble situation instead of being, you know, on site, you're broadcasting or broadcast position. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the opportunity for us to call more games is always great. And certainly to be able to call 
nationally on the radio is a great opportunity. Um, in terms of our chemistry, it's gotten better and better the more games we've been able to call. Um, you know, at the start, uh, I had worked with the same color analyst with the Vancouver Giants, Bill Wilms, who's an excellent color analyst in Vancouver. I'd worked with him for four years. So it was a, a little bit difficult of a transition for me at first because I was so used to calling games with Bill and the way right. Bill analyzed a game and the moments where he would jump in and provide his analysis, that that was sort of hard, a little bit hard to get used to at first with Corey just, you know, sort of figuring out where he wants to talk and, and how we're going to get our chemistry and making sure we're not talking over each other um, and getting to know each other as well because we had, I had never met Corey before I was hired for the job. Really? So that's someone that you have never met before that now you're having to step into a broadcast booth and, and try and have good chemistry and present a good broadcast with. So, um, so it took us some time for sure. And, you know, it took some time for Corey as well. I think it's fair to say because he had never been a full-time color analyst before. So he, you know, was, was learning on the job a, a lot of the time early on, but uh, you wouldn't know it from listening because he, you know, he's, he's such a professional and does such a great job. Uh, but you know, the, the more games we've called together, the more we understand each other's chemistry, the more I understand when he's going to want to jump in, when he's got some analysis or where I need to continue to carry the play-by-play. Um, and, and he has a better understanding too of moments in the game where I'm going to provide an opening uh, for him to jump in, right? Where, you know, if a defenseman goes back into his own zone to set up a breakout and he's got it behind the net and both teams are getting a line change, um, you know, maybe when we first started calling games, Corey wouldn't want to jump in because he wouldn't want to step on my toes. But now he knows that we've probably got 10 or 15 seconds before anything of note is going to happen in those situations. And so he's got the opportunity to jump in and provide analysis. And, um, you know, those are just sort of some of the little tricks of the trade behind the scenes kind of things that you might not realize from listening. But to me, if I listen back to a broadcast we did three years ago and I listen back to a broadcast we did last week, it's absolutely night and day. And, you know, that just comes with repetition and with chemistry. You know, I'm certainly a, a better broadcaster than I was three years ago. Corey is too. And together we're a bit, we have a better partnership on the air than we ever have as well. You said you worked with the color analyst before you worked with Hershey for four years. What was the difference having the same person knowing the same idiosyncrasies that you and your former color analyst that you worked with with the Vancouver Giants for almost five seasons. When you said it was a tough transition, what did he bring to the broadcast that you were having a tough time trying to transition from, you know, working with a goaltender instead of who you had before? Yeah. So Bill, Bill Wilms, who I worked with the Giants was a former player, uh, but he also has, 25 years of color commentary experience i believe or i did at that time he's probably got over 30 years now wow. so um so he knew exactly when he wanted to get in uh and and again it was just a chemistry when you work with someone for four years you know the little idiosyncrasies you know like he knew when i was going to let him jump in to have uh some analysis i knew when he was going to want to jump in we, we knew each other's cadence so that um, you build that sort of chemistry when you've called, I don't know what we would have called somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 games together. And, and so I, it was just, it was just comfortable, right? Counting, like, pre I, I, counting preseason or not? 
not county preseason. So okay. it would have been because it was what 72 game regular seasons that we used to do in the Western Hockey League. Sprinkle in a few playoff games there and a few exhibition games as well. So anyway, we had called a ton of games together and you know, it's very different, but I kind of liken it to like a romantic relationship where you are in a relationship with someone and you know each other's habits and you know what's going to make the other person happy and you know what's going to piss the other person off and you sort of build that chemistry and you get comfortable together. But then if a relationship ends and you start a new relationship, you have to discover all of those things about another person. And it's not to say that, you know, things were wrong with the old person and are right with the new person or vice versa. It's just different. So, you know, in, you know, we, we jokingly talk about, you know, a play by play man and a color analyst being like a marriage. And, um, but, but in some ways it is because, you know, I broadcast know marriage, a broadcast marriage. Exactly. Because, you know, now that I've worked with Hershey for three years, uh, I have a greater understanding of what he's like as a person, what he's like as a broadcaster, what's going to work for us on the air, what's not going to work for us on the air. Um, and it would be the same thing in a relationship where if I had been with someone for three years, you know their routines, you know their the little quirks that will piss them off or make them happy. And so um, it wasn't so much that, you know, I had I had worked with Bill before and it was very different than Hershey it's just they're two different people that are going to react to things different ways that are going to analyze things different ways uh and and so it was just about getting comfortable with Corey after having been so comfortable with Bill because of the amount of games that we'd called together how often would you fly solo and when you flew solo what were the things that you had to know for yourself is like okay i know i can't do the analyst job but if i can sprinkle maybe this in to at least make it easier for me like what were the things that you felt like if you had to fly solo that you had to know besides the basics especially when you had a cargo analyst to bounce ideas off of yeah so I, i'm very lucky in that when i started doing play-by-play i almost exclusively flew solo so I broke in in the BC Hockey League with the Surrey Eagles. I was the play-by-play guy. They did not have a color analyst. So I would occasionally uh, have another broadcaster come in and do a game or two, or if there was a player that was hurt and wasn't playing. But, but so generally speaking, I flew solo most of the time. And, you know, for that one season, that really improved me as a broadcaster because you have to fill that time, right? There's no safety net. It is you and a microphone, and that's it. Um, you're, so, ba- you're basically play play guy, producer, sports sports information director, hoping for all the equipment worked. <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. There were times where I was trying to troubleshoot equipment issues while I was calling the game. Um, so, you know, that, that was, in, you know, a great learning experience for me. And, you know, those games were just broadcasted online. So... Audio, audio probably, online or video? So both. But there probably weren't a ton of listeners or viewers at that level, except, you know, the parents of players sure. who live elsewhere and, you know, need to tune in to watch their son play junior hockey. Sure. So there probably weren't a lot of people listening, which meant I was able to make some mistakes and learn from them and grow and, and all of those things. So, um, you, you know, I, I uh, at that point, 
I, uh, I flew solo quite a lot. I got a lot better at it than when I made the jump to the Western Hockey League and the Vancouver Giants. I would have to fly solo, you know, maybe 10 to 15 times per season out of 72 games. Uh, but the interesting part about that for me is when I was doing the Giants, we had an hour pregame show plus game and a 45-minute postgame show. Uh, so you, you learn <laughs> – you learn a lot about how to prepare, how to be ready ahead of time, how to have a number of talking points, how to have a number of pre-recorded interviews. Um, and, and then in terms of actually calling the game, getting back to your original question, I would almost try to imagine that I was two different people. So I would have a, you know, a metaphorical play-by-play hat and a metaphorical color analyst hat. And when the game was happening, I would put on my play-by-play hat and call the play-by-play. And then when there was a stoppage in play, I would switch hats and try to be my own color analyst. And, you know, it didn't, didn't amount to anything like me doing a silly voice to sound different or anything like that. But that was sort of the mindset I put myself into is when the game's happening, I'm calling the play-by-play. But then I also have to be ready to essentially be the analyst as well when there's a stoppage of play because I don't have an analyst here. And you end up, almost having a conversation back and forth with yourself, um, which in general, again, has made me a much better broadcaster. So that now if, uh, if there's a situation where there's a technical issue and I'm the only one on the air, I am able to tap dance and I am able to fill time and not have people hopefully realize that I'm tap dancing and filling time, but just have it sound natural. Um, so you know, there have been instances even in the NHL where, you know, Corey's a former player. So sometimes, you know, he has to go and be a part of a ceremony that happens in the rink at the intermission or something like that. And so he, you know, a couple, it's maybe happened twice in the three years where he has to leave the booth five or 10 minutes early to get to somewhere else in the arena for something he has to do. Or I had to start a game by myself one time because he was dropping the ceremonial puck for the faceoff before the game at center ice. Um, but it's, you know, all those games that I called going through junior hockey where I was doing an hour pregame, a full game and a 45 minute postgame show by myself, uh, you know, that, that have really prepared me for that. And now it's something that I don't even think about in terms of being worried about it or being scared about it because I've had so many reps and I've had so much experience going, well, this postgame shows 15 more minutes and I've run out of stuff to talk about, but I've got to keep going. Um, that, that, you know, now I feel really comfortable in those situations. And, um, you know, certainly I, I've never had to call a game by myself at the NHL level, but if it ever were to happen, I would, you know, feel completely comfortable doing it. Okay. Break this down. The first time you had the hour pregame and the 45 minute postgame, you're probably thinking, I don't know if you ever thought this, but did you ever get the feeling of what in the world have I gotten myself into? Or was, yeah. it, oh, or, was it, or was it basically sponsor-based where you knew you had to do <coughs> the yeah, hour no, pregame and the 45 minutes because you already because you knew what you were going to sell. But however, why were you getting why were you doing the hour pregame and the 45 minute postgame and all that online? Well, so no, that was for the Vancouver Giants. So at that time, that was on um on TS1040 in Vancouver. So that was on one of the major radio stations. Before that, uh, with the Surrey Eagles, when I was doing those online games, I would do like a 15 minute pregame show and maybe five or 10 minutes post game wrapping things up. Much um, easier. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, so 
you know, basically what happened is when uh, the Vancouver Giants negotiated their deal with the radio station, they negotiated an hour pregame show and a 45-minute postgame show, and then I was hired for the job, and they said, okay, great. That's up to you now. Um, and so certainly, you know, I look back on it now, it was great, right? I, I learned a lot. I got a lot better by having to do those shows. Uh, I didn't always have to do them on my own. Oftentimes, I would have two or three guests as part of the pregame show. Uh, I would have pre-recorded interviews. But, you know, for those games where it was me, and it was usually on the road, where I would be traveling with the team, and Bill, for whatever reason, wouldn't be able to make a game, and you're in a visiting arena, so you don't have the normal media that cover your home games that you could have on as guests. Those were the challenging ones. And I can certainly remember games where uh, I was going on the air for the pregame show going, well, we're going to see what this hour is going to be like because I definitely don't have enough content to fill it. Uh, and then at the end of the hour, you find a way to get through it and, and get to the, the opening puck drop. But uh, the number one thing I learned early about doing those was to pre-record as much as I could. So I would pre-record interviews with a player or two before the game. I would pre-record an interview with the head coach of both teams before the game. I would try to find someone in the arena that could come on with me for 10 minutes as a guest to set up the game so that it wasn't literally me talking with myself for a whole hour. And, you know, there were some games where I had lots of stuff that I was able to use. And there were some games where I didn't have very much. And it was those games where I didn't have very much that made me a better broadcaster because, you know, you're, you're, you're out walking on a tightrope and there's no safety net, but you're on the air on a major station in a major market in Canada. So you cannot afford to drop the ball. And, um, and so because of those, those pregame shows, you know, absolutely. If I look back at anything that has made me a better broadcaster in my career, I would absolutely point to those hour long pregame shows that I had to do while I was working for the Vancouver giants. How do you keep yourself mentally sharp when you did all that? And now that you're working with Canucks, how do you still keep yourself mentally sharp, even though you have a color in this, but sometimes you can, kind of lose it a little bit, even though you're doing possibly up to 90 games with one team, and then you might be getting ready for the postseason with that one team if you make the playoffs, and then if you, you know, your team falls out, they may need you to still call, you know, games like you're doing now with the Stanley Cup final nationally for the folks in Canada on the Sportsnet Hockey Network. How do you keep yourself sure? Because now it's going to be at least over, what, 100 games for you, I guess? Yeah, when it's all said and done. Yeah, when you, when you go, the regular season was shorter because of the pandemic. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure I'll get to 100 games this year. Yeah, um, no, it's just something that it's all about preparation, right? Like athletes will tell you um, that you know you don't just show up for the game, skate onto the ice, and score a hat trick. You need to prepare. You need to work hard in practice. You need to eat well. You need to get your rest. You need to hydrate well. And like all of those things, literally every single one of them applies to broadcasting as well, even though it's not physical. But, you know, I do a ton of preparation for every game. I probably do three or four hours of, of statistical preparation uh, and preparing my notes every game. Uh, I always try to make sure I've slept very well before I go on the air. Uh, I make sure I'm very well hydrated. I make sure I've eaten well. You know, you've got to put yourself in a situation to succeed. And even though people listening to this might be like, well, you know, what's so hard about it? You just talk on the radio. 
You don't have to do anything physical. You don't have oh, to injure yourself like those players do. I can tell you that there are nights after game broadcasts where I am thoroughly exhausted. Same here. And I, I mean, when I do basketball I have, yeah. or football, I mean, that's about two and a half, three hours. Even though I don't do a pregame show, but still, it's exhausting yeah. because you, you know what you're dealing with for four quarters and maybe overtime if you get there. So that's going to add a little bit more extra time. And if you're not mentally sharp or prepared, you're in a tough spot. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. No, it, it's about, and, and it's the, the reason it's so exhausting is because there's so much focus involved, right? Like, again, I talk about the amount of preparation I do. 95% of the preparation I do before the game never makes it to the air, but I have to do it so that I'm prepared. And so that uh, if some crazy situation happens, I am, I have statistical background for it. So, you know, before every game, I make sure I have the career penalty shot record, the career shootout record for regular season games and the career hat tricks for every player in the game. Even though the sixth defenseman might only play eight minutes in a game and get two shots, Mm-hmm. But I have to do that preparation because what if tonight is the night that he scores his first career hat trick? I need to know that information. So, again, it's about being prepared. It's about being focused. It's about being committed. Um, and and you know what? Uh, to be honest, too, like when you call 100 games in a season, there are going to be nights where you finish the night. And you're like, well, that wasn't a good broadcast. On to the next one. And, again, you know, I, I hold myself to a very high standard. But, you like know, if you think about should. just – Exactly. But, but, you know, you think about anybody that work goes to work and does a job, whatever that job may be, whether it's a broadcaster, whether it's an athlete, whether you're working in an office, whether you're a delivery driver, whatever it is, there are going to be days where you don't have a good day at work or you're not your best or something goes wrong, whatever it might be. So I think another thing that's very important for broadcasters is to be resilient because, you know, Jim Robson used to always joke, Every time that there would be a mistake on the broadcast, he'd be like, well, there goes the perfect broadcast. And what I've come to realize is the perfect broadcast does not exist. After every single broadcast I do, I can find something that I could have done better. There's always so at you, least one or two or 15 mistakes you can look at. They may be when, you say the, yeah, when you say the number of words that I have to on the air, and then you have to do it 82 to 100 times a season, you're going to make mistakes. So, you know, this is something that when I was coming through broadcasting school used to bother me a lot more, and now it doesn't as much, is that, you know what, you're going to make mistakes, but you just have to move on. You can't dwell on them. You can't let them keep you up at night because they're going to happen. Now, as you advance in your career and you get more repetition and you get better, you try to limit those mistakes as much as possible, but the fact is they're still going to be there. Uh, but you have to be resilient and you have to make sure that you do the best possible job you can on any given day and prepare yourself to do that job in the best possible manner that you can. And, you know, I've, I talk to young broadcasters all the time and people going through broadcasting school and I liken it to a goaltender in hockey where you'll always hear, Oh, the goalie gave up a bad goal. And it's like, well, you give up a bad goal, but now you've got to put that behind you because you're still playing the game and you still need to make all the rest of the saves to help your team win. It's like so, a pitcher. It's like a starting pitcher in baseball. Maybe you're a reliever. He may give up, oh, I don't know, a bases loaded walk, a bases loaded single, a you know home run the first pitch to end the game. They but nobody stay. cares about that if he if he wins the game, right? No, but what I'm so, saying, but what I'm saying is maybe maybe he you know gives up the gives up the homer you know to 
or the hit to tie the game, and then maybe another hit to lose the game. It's I've heard this phrase a lot. You have to have amnesia. Yes, exactly. And and so, you know, to bring it back to hockey, you know, if the goaltender gives up a bad goal in the first period, guess what? He's still got to play the next two periods and try to help mm-hmm. his team win. And that's the same as a broadcaster. So if you make a mistake, you cannot let it get in your head because then it's going to ruin the rest of your broadcast because you're going to be so focused on that mistake you made back in the first period that you're not going to be focusing on what's happening right now. So, um, so that's something that, that I've worked on and gotten better at through my career. And, you know, the mistakes still bother me because, as I said, I hold myself to a high standard. And if I misspeak or if something goes wrong, I'm frustrated with myself. But, again, you have to be frustrated, but then you have to use it as motivation to just be better and forget about it very quickly. Yeah, I also went to a broadcast school as well, which is unfortunately no longer here. But I pretty much learned – a lot of the same things, but there are some days where you just can't get out of your head, even though you know you did okay, but you feel like there's always ways to improve. How big yeah. for you yeah. is it to always keep figuring out ways, maybe not improve on your style, but improve on delivery the pacing the energy and you know make sure you're not screaming but you still get your point across but in a much more clear and smoother delivery than say the day before if you get a or the day off like the couple of days after you get done with one broadcast you maybe use part of that day for a flight or you're you know still in a homestand you get the day off yeah, you know, it's it's something where I I always say to young broadcasters that you always need to be improving because I thought I was ready to call games in the NHL the moment I stepped out of broadcast school. And now if I listen back to broadcasts that I did when I first started doing play-by-play, I would cringe, right? <laughs> and, you know, I hope I'm not going to be cringing at the broadcasts I'm doing today in five or ten years. But the fact is you can always get better and you should never be complacent and you should never be accepting that – Okay, you know, I've made it to the NHL. I'm I'm doing good. I, I can I can mail it in now. You never mail exactly. it in. Like that that should that should ne- you should always be striving to be better. And the best way to do that is two things. One, to listen to yourself back on broadcasts, which sounds like it would be an ego thing where, man, I want to listen to back back and hear how good I sounded. But the fact is when you listen back, you find things that you can improve. There are some that are like Oh, I, I mean, for me, the biggest thing, because I hear my voice in my ears every night. Yeah. Especially in your, you know, when you had the headphones on and, you know, you had the headset mic combo and you are hearing your voice in your head, in your ear holes every night, every yeah. night. Can you really yeah. tell what you did well when you're not listening or not in the moment? Or do you always have to wait and get in your mode of transportation and actually then go back and listen or figure out a way to get a copy of the game and go back and listen to the radio call itself? Yeah, so I, I, there are times where if you, if you screw up, you know it right away because mm-hmm. you can tell that you said something wrong. But it's more of those bad habits that you get into that you pick up on if you take, take a day and listen back to it afterwards, right? Like when I'm calling the game, I might not realize that I've used the same statement repetitively when the same thing happens. Right. Mm -hmm. But 
when I listen back to it, I go, I can, you know, you, you're separated from it. You're listening to it rather than doing it. And so you can be separate from that and go, Oh, wow. I'm saying that a lot. Well, I better fix that. And then you consciously make an effort the next time you go on the air to not say that every time and to diversify your language. That's the biggest thing for me. And it's something I've worked very hard on is early in my career. I had crutches that I would lean on where I would say the same thing every time something similar happened on the ice. And, you know, now that I've had more experience and I've listened to myself a lot and I've worked to improve that happens less, but it can still creep back into your broadcast. And so that to me, again, it's not an ego thing that I'm listening back to sit, to hear, Oh man, I sound amazing. It's more listening back to make sure that I'm not getting back to some of those bad habits that I had earlier in my career. And that can still crop up at any level of your career, whether you've been calling games for two days or two decades. Um, and then the other thing also that I tell you know, broadcasters is to listen to broadcasters that you think are good and don't spend time listening to broadcasters that you think are bad. And again, you know, it's opinion based, right? So there will be broadcasters that I think do a great job that you won't like and vice versa. You know, it's just like music where, you know, I might like a band, you might not like that band. But the fact is that if you are, you're, you're going to want to sound like the people you like or the broadcasters you respect or the broadcasters you think do a good job. So you should listen to them as much as possible. Not that you're wanting to copy them, but you can pick up on, on positive trends or certain ways of describing things that, that broadcasters that you like or you think do a good job do. And it's very important not to spend time listening to broadcasters that you don't like or you think do a bad job because in the same way that you can pick up positive things from good broadcasters, you can pick up negative things from listening to bad broadcasters too much. So, um, you know, I, I, again, it's all opinion-based. But for me, I try to listen back to myself to make sure that I'm doing what I believe to be a good job. And then I try to spend my time when I'm listening to broadcasters to listen to people that I think are good at what they do because that's going to make me better by being exposed to that. When you're getting ready for a Stanley Cup final, like now we know, we know the two teams that are there, Tampa Bay and Dallas, when the, when the Lightning closed out the Islanders, even the Islanders are a tough bunch. I mean, especially with Coach Trotz behind the bench, who plays a defensive-minded style of hockey anyway. Mm-hmm. What did you feel like the key was for Tampa to finally just close them out, even though the Islanders had pushed them to a sixth game? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think Tampa Bay was by far the better team in the series. And it was that defensive structure from the Islanders that allowed them to push it to six games where, you know, to me, they were not the more skilled team. They were not the better team but they found a way to hang around and get to a point where they were in overtime in game six with a chance to force game seven. And when you're in that situation, you know, sometimes you just need a lucky bounce and you get the game winning goal and and off you go. And then game seven, anything can happen. But, you know, to me, Tampa Bay is a much more dangerous team offensively. They're deeper. Uh, They had some injury issues through this series. You look at uh, the two games the Lightning lost. They were the only two games that Braden Point didn't play in the series because he's been banged up. Mm-hmm. Um, so not to take anything away from the Islanders, who are a very good team and I think are going to be a good team for years to come. They've got some good young talent. Um, but in this year, in this series, to me, they were clearly the second best team. And there were times in the series where they were just holding on 
for dear life. Um, so, you know, the, uh, I always felt like the Lightning were going to win this series. It felt like it would be a matter of time until they would find a way to do it. And certainly the Islanders, I think, were a tougher matchup than, than I expected and maybe they expected. But in the end, the cream rose to the top. And where do you think the turning point for Dallas came in the playoffs when they finally got out of the round robin, you know, finished out their first round series, and they had a tough seven-game seven set with the Abs, and then they just demolished Vegas. And where do you think the turning point was for Vegas where they just couldn't you know, figure it out because, you know, you guys gave them a tough six game set or a seven game or however many games that series with you and Vegas win. Did you yeah. feel like Vancouver kind of exposed Vegas a little bit and Dallas just took advantage or do you think it was just a combination of Dallas, you know, after that seventh game was like, okay, we know who we're going to face. We faced this team before the pandemic hit and we know what they are. And we, you know, we can expose their weaknesses more. Or do you think maybe Dallas is like, okay, Vancouver exposed some stuff that maybe we can capitalize on with the talent that they have? Yeah, I think there are a lot of factors that went into it. So I certainly think that Vancouver, the way they played Vegas, showed Dallas a roadmap to have success. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think the Vancouver series really affected the confidence of the Vegas team because again, like I was talking about with the Islanders, the Canucks were the same way where the Canucks were clearly the second best team in that series with Vegas. And they were pesky. Yes. But they, but they were hanging on for dear life at times, sure, right? Like sure. that Thatcher yeah. Demko had to come in in the crease and be unbelievable for three straight games to even get them into a situation where they had a chance to mm -hmm. win game seven. Sure. But coming out of that series, Vegas confidence was shaken for my money because they had been so good and they had had so little success that that carried over into the Dallas series. And, you know, to me, in the majority of the games we saw, I thought Vegas was the better team. Than sure. Dallas. Agreed. But they couldn't find a way to score, even though they had the better chances. I think Dallas, what really hurt Vegas was Dallas is a bigger more physical and tougher team to play against than and Vancouver is. you could is. tell, because, I mean, every time Dallas would hit, this is just from where I sit, even though I didn't listen to the series, just felt like, okay, because I kept looking at the scores, I'm like, okay, either Vegas is smaller and they're getting exposed for not having more lead in the backside where they can actually be more aggressive and they're trying to be a little too cute, or Dallas is just a – big monster of a hockey team that just, you know, just wears on folks because they are just on you and they just wear you out and they just skate, they out skate you, they out hit you. They just flat out play time of possession. If you're not careful, they can beat you maybe in a one, nothing two one type of physical game. And that's how, the, that's what they want to do. They want to play physical. Yeah. And I think, you know, they're, they're a bigger, more physical team. So they were able to punish Vegas more physically but they really established their forecheck, which was huge mm -hmm. because the Golden Knights, the strength of their game is the transition where their defensemen move the puck up to the forwards quickly. They're yep. fast in transition and they make you pay that way. Yep. The Dallas, their forwards got in on the forecheck. They made the Vegas defense pay physically. Uh, they took away time and space from the Golden Knight defensemen. So they couldn't get that transition game going. 
as effectively as they had earlier in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And then Dallas was opportunistic as well, where, you know, most of the games in that series, they were heavily outshot by the Golden Knights. But yet when they got their chances, they made them count. Sure. And the opposite was the case for Vegas, where they would have 40 shots in a game and they would have a lot of good scoring chances. But whether it was their own confidence or whether it was what Dallas was doing defensively or whatever it might be, they just struggled to score so much. And that really started in the Vancouver series, carried over into the Dallas series. And that, to me, was a, a big reason why the Golden Knights lost. So speaking of Vancouver, do you think Thatcher Dibko is the future of this hockey team? Uh, it's a hard question. They've uh, they've got some issues in the crease right now in that they have to re-sign uh, Jacob Markstrom, their starting goaltender, who is going to be an unrestricted free agent uh, coming up in October if they don't get him extended. Uh, and he was, you know, their their key goaltender this year. He was the starting goaltender all year long. Many people thought he should have been in the conversation for the Vezina Trophy. Um, and then he got hurt late in that series. And Thatcher Demko, who's a young goaltender who doesn't have a ton of NHL experience, came in and was remarkable for three straight games. The problem with all of this is that the Seattle expansion draft is coming next year, mm-hmm. and the Canucks will not be able to protect both Demko and Markstrom. I'm, so I'm, just, guessing, year, I'm just guessing here. Sorry to cut you off again, Terry. I'm just guessing that maybe they either you know, leave Markstrom unprotected or they find a way to keep Markstrom trade Dimco. Maybe. I don't know how that would, how that's going to work <clears throat> with Canucks or do you think they're going to send Dimco back down to the minors so he can get some more seasoning if the minor league season opens back up again? Yeah. There's, uh, there's to me, there's no way Demko is going to the minors. What what the interesting question will be is, A, can they get Jacob Markstrom signed? True. Because they have some salary cap issues with some of the other players they've signed, and Jacob Markstrom would command a good salary if he goes to unrestricted free agency. So there's a chance that he just goes to unrestricted free agency, signs somewhere else, and then Thatcher Demko is your guy, and maybe you bring in another veteran goaltender to help spell him off a bit so he doesn't have to play every game. Right. Uh, or you commit to Markstrom long-term, and then you would explore trading Demko at some point, whether that is today, tomorrow, or the day before the expansion draft next year, um, you know, remains to be seen. But for me, it all will depend on whether they can get Markstrom signed here in the next month. And then based on that, everything will, will flow from there. But, you know, Thatcher Demko has proven himself to be a very capable NHL goaltender, although he hasn't had the workload of a starting goaltender yet. So we saw what he did in that Vegas series. Mm -hmm. You know, he's going to be a starting goaltender in the NHL. The question is, will it be in Vancouver or will it be somewhere else? Do you think the NHL will allow teams to go back playing in their regular arenas? Or do you think this will still be a bubble situation? And speaking of bubble, I know I've kept you longer than I, you know, had in mind, but (laughs) when you have a good chat, this is what happens. So, when you got to the bubble, what was it like trying to make sure you still call the same game, even though you're in a different position, trying to wow. you know keep your broadcast so, position with a monitor? So we, yeah, we, we have not been in the bubble at all. We are broadcasting games out of a studio in Vancouver, and we are watching them on TV like everyone else. Now, we have very good, big monitors, and we have multiple camera angles, but it is completely different from being there. 
So that's been the biggest challenge is, you know, trying to provide the same level of broadcast that we do normally when you're not in the building and, you know, people might be listening to this saying, Oh, you know, how, how hard can it be? You see it on TV. You see it when you're there. There are so many things that happen in the game that happen behind the play out of the view of the camera angle that provide context that now we just cannot bring that context because we're broadcasting remotely. So, you know, it's been a challenge. We've done our, our best to try and, you know, bring a, a great broadcast. I think we've done as good of a job as possible, but you know, to be perfectly honest, there's, there's no way to replicate being in the arena no, as opposed to not. being big in a different province in a studio watching on a TV. Cause I, you know, I, I've talked to a few of the PXP voices of a couple of different teams in the league with our local broadcast, but the radio voice, Pete Weber here and the voice of the blue jackets, Bob McElligan. I talked to him about that as well. And all of them said pretty much almost the same thing you're saying. It's, it was interesting and it was different, but you try to keep it at the same level. Cause I, you know, I'd ask Pete, cause I know he had done TV and, you know, done TV and radio. I asked him like, how different was it to try to still make it sound like a radio broadcast, even though you're getting more of your coverage from TV, how do you keep from, you know, doing a TV broadcast on the radio side? Yeah, well, and again, it comes down to those things I was talking about earlier about being as descriptive as you can. And, you know, you may not have the same viewpoint and you may not have the same ability to do that, but you still try to do it to the best of your ability. So just because I'm not in the building doesn't mean that I can't describe that a guy has it on the left wing or he has it in the left corner or, or center circle. Yes, or, or however you want to describe it. So that part of it hasn't changed. It's just, you know, there there are times where I don't know who has shot the puck because uh, it gets played back to the point. The camera pans back, the guy takes the shot, it pans back to the net. And you had about a a half second of that player in the screen and you didn't have time to see who it was. And so those are moments where you can tell it affects my broadcast because I simply have to just say, and there's a shot for Tampa Bay rather than saying, and Luke Shen shot it on net or or, or whoever it might be. And those are just issues that when you're not there, you've got to live with. And, you know, as a broadcaster that, again, I'd hold myself to a high standard. I want to do the best job possible. That's very frustrating for me, Mm -hmm. but there's literally nothing I can do about it. If I can't see who the guy is that takes the shot, I cannot tell you who it was that took the shot. And there have been times in this playoffs where I don't know who has scored a goal. Sure. And I have to buy my myself You have to wait for the PA guy. Well, not even that. I, I buy myself enough time to figure it out usually. Sure. So I shot. Oh, and they score. The Tampa Bay Lightning take a one nothing lead as the puck crossed the goal line and taking the shot off the right wing to open the scoring and make it one nothing was Eric Chernak. But as you can tell with that description, I bought myself like 10 extra seconds to figure out who it was and maybe get a replay or see what player the camera cuts to uh, in the celebration line. Um but again, those are things that when you're in the building, you know, 99 times you out of 100, pick, you, pick up on that. you see exactly what happened. But when you're watching on a monitor, it's, it's not as easy. I mean, for me, when I'm in a basketball gym and I have my spotter behind me or wherever, you know, they have us positioned where we look at the action because, you know, they're telling me what's going on in my ear hole and they try to pick up on the other stuff that I can't pick up on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it makes things interesting, but it's fun when you could actually 
do the game actual justice and do it properly. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, you know, with TV, it's more of a challenge to do it justice, but you just have to do the best, the best opportunity that you can when you're watching on a monitor rather than being there. So, um, you know, we do our best. It, it may not be the same level, but at the same time, we've got a lot of compliments from people saying that, you know, they didn't even realize that we weren't in the arena. So that's a, that's a good part of it as well. So what's game prep heading into the finals like for you with uh, Tampa and uh, Dallas, which starts tomorrow at 6.30 Central, 4.30 Pacific time? Yeah, I'm going to probably get into some prep this evening right after I get off the phone with you. Uh, to be honest, it's not that bad because I just finished calling both of these teams in their respective conference final series. So I've built out a lot of my prep on them just from having, you know, called a bunch of games of them already. Uh, but the major things I'll look into between now and when we go on the air tomorrow are more uh, situational things. So, you know, how did Dallas do when they played Tampa Bay in the regular season? Um, you know, how is Tampa Bay when they have a lead in a game? How are they when they're trailing? The same right. goes for Dallas. So, so more situational things that will be specific to the series. But because I've already broadcasted both of these teams, I have a lot of st my statistical background work done on players for the Dallas Stars and the Tampa Bay Lightning. My thanks to the radio voice of the Vancouver Canucks, Brendan Batchelor, for being my guest on this New Year's edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast on the Luther King Broadcast Network. If you have suggestions for people you'd like to hear on the podcast, email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Send me a message on Twitter at king underscore tsb on Instagram at lking at cardinalsman85. This has been another exciting edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. You've been listening to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Line from birth, Luther King never let that stop him from attaining his goal of becoming a blind broadcaster. To find out more about the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network, search the Blind Broadcaster Podcast or Luther King Broadcast Network on social media or visit Luther King Broadcast Network.com.